So today I'm going to talk about Hume on the external world, and that basically means the sections 142 and 144 of the treatise. I'm also going to mention as we go through 143 so that you'll see the whole passage of those three sections um, as a coherent whole. So, of scepticism with regard to the senses is Treatise 142. Now, this is a notoriously difficult section. Uh, It's also quite confusing. And I'm not convinced that Hume, really, in his own mind, was clear where he was going with it. So, one of the things I'll be doing next time is trying to make sense of Hume's attitude to scepticism so that you can see how these rather confusing threads uh, can be brought together into a, into a coherent picture. So it follows on Treatise 141. I'm not going through Treatise 141 um, in detail. Um, suffice to say, there, what Hume does, it's called of scepticism with regard to reason. And Hume seems kind of rather paradoxically to argue that our reason is self-defeating. But then at the end of it, he says, well, the reason for giving all these sceptical arguments is just to show, to prove, that just like he said with regard to induction, we do, in fact, carry on having beliefs, even when we find that we can't justify them. So the sceptic continues to believe, even when his belief cannot be defended. And then we come up to what causes induce us to believe in the existence of body? But it is in vain to ask whether there be body or not. That is a point which we must take for granted in all our reasonings. So it looks like he's going to address the question, why is it that we believe in the existence of physical things? And he's going to spell that out in terms of continuously and distinctly existing. Continuously existing even when we don't see them, distinct from us. Why do we believe in those kinds of objects? And here he seems to be saying, well, we've just got to take it for granted that there are such objects. We're not going to raise the sceptical worry of whether they actually exist. We're just going to ask what causes induce us to believe in them. But the section is strange because by the end of it, the explanation that Hume has given of why we believe in external objects uh, actually ends up persuading him that the belief is completely incoherent, that it's a false belief. So I began with premising that we ought to have an implicit faith in our senses. That's the passage we've just seen. But to be honest, I now feel myself of a quite contrary sentiment and am inclined, more inclined to repose no faith at all in my senses, or rather imagination, than to place in it such an implicit confidence. So at the beginning of the section, you get this apparently rather confident Of course we believe in the existence of body, we're not questioning that. By the end of it, he does seem to be questioning it. So, if you find that puzzling, don't worry, everybody does. Uh, This is one of those sections where there are almost as many interpretations as there are commentators. It's really quite difficult to get straight on it. So, if you feel a certain amount of vertigo as you read it, uh, that you're losing control and you really don't know quite what's going on, do not attribute that necessarily to misunderstanding on your part. It really is a difficult section. So what I'm going to try to do is give you a a kind of map of what's going on in the section uh, so you can read it for yourself, follow it through, and I hope make reasonably good sense of it as far as uh, uh, that is feasible. So the belief in body, Hume explains as... involving two different aspects. First of all, there's a question of why we attribute a continued existence to objects, even when they're not present to the senses. So that's one part of the belief. And the other belief is that we think of objects as being distinct from us. Um, And distinctness involves both external position and independence. He then argues that each of these implies the other. So actually... Uh, Once you've got one of them, you automatically get the other. And now we get this declaration of intention. What Hume is going to do in this section is discuss whether it's the senses or reason or the imagination 
that produces the opinion of continued or of a distinct existence. And he again says, um, these are the only questions that, that it's worth our asking here. We're not going to ask uh, whether these things actually exist, and we're not going to discuss um, the, cons- the concept of external existence, which he's already said is problematic. Uh, if you go and look at Treatise 126, you'll see why. Again, that's not something I'm going to um, talk about here. Now, <clears throat> notice that we've got a similar question here to the question that he asked in the case of induction. In the case of induction, Hume said, is it reason that produces the inductive belief? And he comes to the conclusion, no, it's the imagination. Uh, And he's going to do a similar thing here, except here he's going to also exclude the senses. So he's going to come to the conclusion that our belief in the continued and distinct existence of body is not due to the senses, not due to reason, it's due to the imagination. Now, we'll see that there are, there are complexities here, and next time I will be talking about how to reconcile the things that he says about induction with what he says about the external world, because it turns out that he means the imagination in slightly different senses uh, in the two sections. Put that on one side for the moment. So the first question is, is the belief in continued and distinct existence due to the senses? And... In discussing this, it becomes clear that Hume, when he thinks of the senses, he's thinking here of the senses as simply bare sources of impressions. Right? We, we have impressions coming to our mind. The senses are what give us those impressions. Now, it follows from that that the senses can't actually give us the belief in continued and distinct existence. Um, because all they do is provide impressions. How can they provide a belief that there's something there when the impressions aren't there? Okay. They can't offer their impressions as the images of something distinct or independent because they convey to us nothing but a single perception and never give us the least intimation of anything beyond. So if the senses were to give us some idea of a distinct and continued existence, it would have to be by some kind of fallacy or illusion. But that's not possible because all the senses do, as I've said, is give impressions. They can't lie. They just give impressions as they are. All sensations are felt by the mind such as they really are. A famous passage here, since all actions and sensations of the mind are known to us by consciousness, they must appear in every particular what they are. Now, this is quite problematic, all right? Um, Hume obviously believes in the kind of transparency of the mind. When an impression hits your mind, you just see it as it is or feel it as it is. And that's all there is to it, the seeing or the feeling. That's it. So you can't be mistaken. Very plausible view, very tempting view, uh, but philosophically perhaps a bit naive. At any rate, uh, that's going to be... It does strongly indicate that the senses can't as it were, intimate anything beyond the impression that immediately appears. Well, can't the senses at least present objects as external to our body? But that doesn't help because you've got the problem that we attribute a continued and distinct existence to to our bodies in the first place. And that's the same kind of problem that we're trying to explain. So that doesn't actually work. Um, There's also some references to the primary secondary quality distinction. We'll be talking more about that later in the lecture, but note for future reference, there's a couple of paragraphs there worth looking at in in relation to that. Okay, now Hume introduces uh, the first of two views that are going to play quite an important role in what follows. Uh, So Hume talks about the vulgar and the philosophical views of the external world. Now, The vulgar, he thinks, um, believe in the external world without any kind of philosophical sophistication, and they think that the things that appear to them just are the external objects. So there's a sense in which they think of their impressions as being continued and distinct existences. 
Now, notice that that view can be expressed in two different ways, one of which makes it sound paradoxical. If you say, the vulgar believe that their impressions continue to exist even when they're not perceiving them, that makes it sound as though the vulgar are complete idiots. A, a, A more perspicuous way of putting it would be this. The vulgar believe that external, continued and distinct objects appear directly to their minds. They wouldn't call them impressions. It's the philosophers who realize that these are uh, perishing existences. Uh, Everything which appears to the mind is nothing but a perception and is interrupted and dependent on the mind, whereas the vulgar confound perceptions and objects and attribute a distinct continued existence to the very things they feel or see. This sentiment then, as it is entirely unreasonable must proceed from some other faculty than the understanding. And remember, for Hume, reason and the understanding are one and the same. So what he's saying here is that the natural, uh, vulgar, in other words, the common person, the non-philosopher, in advance of philosophical reflection, or the child, um, just thinks of the things they directly perceive, the impressions that appear to their mind. They don't think of them as impressions, they think of them as external objects. But they're wrong. So clearly that view cannot arise from reason. Now, the philosophical view is a bit different. Philosophers, and and remember, when Hume talks about philosophers and the philosophical view, the person he's probably got in mind more than anyone else is John Locke. Um, So philosophers typically believe in a a representative theory of perception. They think there are the impressions that come to the mind, there are the objects out there, the objects cause the impressions, but are distinct from them. So you've got a double existence. You've got the external object and you've got the impression that appears to the mind. Well, let's suppose we take that view. Can they, can those philosophers, do any better than the vulgar in providing a reason for their belief? Uh, Well, according to Hume, no. So an important passage here, 14247, it's one that we'll talk about later, next time, in relation to induction. Um, The way this argument goes is as follows. Philosophers, like Locke, think that there are impressions and objects with the objects causing the impressions. But they're only ever acquainted with the perceptions. They're only ever acquainted with the impressions that come to their mind. They don't directly perceive the objects. They're trying to infer the existence of the object from the perceptions. But the problem is that the only way, according to Hume, to establish a causal connection is by establishing a constant conjunction. You find that A and B are constantly conjoined. You see A followed by B again and again. You then infer a causal connection between them. But in this case, we never see the object, so we're never able to establish that there is a constant conjunction between the object out there and the impressions that appear to our mind. Therefore, we cannot possibly argue from the impressions to the object. Um, So we cannot infer external objects by causal reasoning, which Hume says is the only kind of argument that can assure us of matter of fact. So before moving on, let me just note this point. Hume here is trying to eliminate reason as the cause of the belief in distinct and continued and distinct existence of body. He's already eliminated the senses, now he's going to eliminate reason. But notice that in eliminating reason, what he is doing is saying you cannot argue inductively from perceptions to external objects because you can't set up a causal connection. And inductive inference, as we know, depends on causal relations. So Hume seems to be taking for granted here that if we could reason inductively, if we could, from impressions to objects then the belief in the external objects would be founded on reason. So he seems to be treating inductive inference as an operation of reason, very explicitly. It's the only kind of argument that can assure us of any matter of fact. Because we can't do that, therefore it isn't based on reason. 
That clearly seems to suggest if we could do it, it would be based on reason, or could potentially be based on reason. Okay, so this is part of the kind of puzzle about uh, induction and, and, and the external world that I'll be trying to uh, unravel next time. But what we have for now is that Hume has eliminated the senses and reason as causes of the belief. So the continued, our belief in the continued and distinct existence of body must be entirely owing to the imagination. Now, notice, by the way, there is a little bit of hyperbola here. When he says the belief in the continued and distinct existence of body is owing entirely to the imagination, well, it clearly isn't only owing entirely to the imagination, is it? It relies on the senses too. Without those sense perceptions, you wouldn't have the belief. Uh, so when he says it's owing entirely to the imagination, um, I think we ought to think of that in, 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 in much the following sort of way. I imagine someone climbing up a rock face and um, you notice that the rope on which they are depending is slightly frayed. And you say... Gosh, she's held up only by that rope. Well, no, she isn't. She's held up by the rock as well. But it's the rope you're focusing on because that's the weak link. Right? Imagine instead that you have a very strong rope, but it's tied at the top to some rather flimsy pillar of rock that looks as though it might give way. And you say, oh dear, she's supported only by that flimsy pillar. No, she's supported by the rope as well. But you focus on the flimsy pillar because that's the weak bit. Right? And I think that's what's going on here. When he says this belief is entirely owing to the imagination or depends entirely on the imagination, he's pointing out that the imagination is, as it were, the dubious link, the problem. There's no problem with the senses providing these impressions. That comes up quite a lot, incidentally, when you read Hume, when he says this belief depends only on the imagination or is entirely owing to the imagination. Okay. So most of the rest of the section is devoted to a kind of psychological or, if you like, cognitive scientific explanation of how the belief in the external world comes about. And the problem I've already alluded to is that it's going to turn out that this explanation pretty much requires that the, or implies that the belief is false. So he's going to come out with a, an explanation of our belief in the external world in, in explaining it, he's apparently going to render it false. And you can see why that would be a real problem. So, Hume famously starts by identifying constancy and coherence as the key things, the factors that lead us to have this belief. So, constancy involves the similarity of perceptions. So, I look at this bottle, I look away, I look back, Oh, that's a constant. There's a constancy in those impressions because the impression is very similar to what it was before. That's constancy. Coherence is to do with um, repeated patterns. So Hume gives the idea, um, give, or gives the example of um, a fire. Right? So imagine you see a fire burning in the hearth and you've just filled it up with wood and it's burning away well, and then you fall asleep. And an hour later, or two hours later, or whatever, you wake up again, and you see that the fire has burnt much lower. Maybe it's even gone out. Maybe there's just a heap of ashes there now. Well, you experience that pattern again and again. You know, maybe every evening this happens. Uh, so there's a coherence to the pattern of perceptions you get the fire impressions followed later by the ash impressions. Um, so a constant, uh, sorry, a coherent pattern means a kind of, re the, the, there's a repeated structure there. Now, there's one paragraph in this section, 14219, where Hume seems to gesture towards what we now call inference to the best explanation. He doesn't actually follow it through, which is a bit of a shame. But you can see that when he talks about coherence, what he's doing, he's alluding to the fact that we find patterns in our behaviour. Now, think back to the, the passage I talked about a little bit earlier where Hume says, 
you can't reason from impressions to objects. And the reason you can't is because you can't establish a causal connection, because the only way you can establish a causal connection is by constant conjunction, seeing A followed by B again and again and again. It's a rather crude model of scientific reasoning. Um, Inference to the best explanation is a more sophisticated form. It's where you're saying, look, if we suppose that things happened in this coherent way, it kind of makes sense of our experience. And uh, people have wondered whether Hume, had he followed this thought through, might have seen that there's another way in which reason could give rise to the belief in external objects. By saying, ah, by postulating external objects, we can explain patterns in our behaviour that otherwise would be unaccountable. Uh, But as we've seen, Hume himself doesn't really acknowledge that. He relies on this this point about constant conjunction. So in that respect, I think Hume's philosophy of science is a bit crude. Okay, so we get a summary of uh, the account here. Might as well just read that through. So, we see something, we look away, we look back, or maybe we just continue looking at something which is very gradually changing. Actually, those perceptions are different perceptions. Looking at the bottle, turning away, looking back, that's an interrupted perception. They can't be the same impressions because they're interrupted. But we nevertheless consider them the same. We're, We're seduced by the similarity into thinking of them as the same. So our imagination kind of smooths over the gap and doesn't notice it. Again, something for you to read. So here we, we realise that there's a contradiction in what we're thinking. Right? I look at the, the bottle, see the impression, turn away, look back, and part of me says, ah, oh, this is the same impression because it's so similar. And part of me realises, no, it's not the same impression because I looked away. So to get round this contradiction, I kind of imagine that there is something there that's constant which isn't identical to my impressions, but somehow all of its content comes from those impressions. And because those impressions have quite a strong force and vivacity, remember here we're getting close to the, remember the account of belief that Hume gives when he's talking about induction, uh, that gives us a belief. So we end up with a belief in something that is strictly incoherent. We kind of, at the same time, we recognise that the interrupted impressions are different but nevertheless want to believe them the same. So we imagine something else, an external object, which gives it the unity. So that's a a summary of the account. Um, In the rest of the section, most of it is taken up with um, an elaboration of this account. And I've given there the relevant section. So I would strongly advise you, when you read this section, to, as it were, divide it up in that way. See, if you see it as having a structure, um, it will be easy to follow, or easier to follow. It's a very complex section, a very complex account. Um, interestingly, Jonathan Bennett, in his well-known book, Locke, Barclay, Hume, Central Themes, uh, 1971, um, he describes this section of Hume as, on the one hand, a total failure. On the other hand, he says it's so complex and sophisticated that by itself it reveals Hume to be a wonderfully great philosopher because he's achieved something in this section uh, that no other philosopher of the period could have managed. So it's worth grappling with even though it's philosophically very um, dubious in, in various ways. One learns a lot by thinking it through. Okay, so uh, let's take a look. <clears throat> 
Now, I want to highlight one problematic assumption that informs quite a lot of what Hume says in giving this detailed account. Remember that the vulgar, the ordinary person, and and by the way, Hume isn't here being all sorts of elitist. Hume actually thinks that all of us are vulgar most of the time. When we step outside our philosophical study, we go back to our ordinary everyday beliefs. So when I'm at my desk thinking about philosophy, I may have some doubts about whether there's an external world or not. But as soon as I leave the door and go and dine or play a game of backgammon, uh, the famous examples Hume gives, um, I just revert to my ordinary everyday beliefs. Um, Okay, so Hume thinks that ordinary people, and all of us most of the time, um, tend to confound perceptions and objects. We don't draw a distinction between the impressions that appear to the mind and the external objects. We think of the external objects as appearing directly to our mind, even though that's in fact false. Okay, then. I, Hume, am going to explain this vulgar belief. The vulgar don't distinguish between impressions and objects, so nor shall I. I shall talk indifferently about impressions and objects, and I'll use whichever word happens to fit the context better. Well, hang on a minute. Can you see there's something very, very dubious about that? The fact that Hume is explaining a vulgar belief doesn't mean at all that the explanation will necessarily be one that the vulgar understand. To explain why somebody's got a belief is quite different uh, from explaining it in terms that they can understand. I mean, my belief in the external world and how my eyes work and all that, perhaps to understand that, you have to be a, know all sorts of things about physics and physiology and how the mind works and all the rest. Just because I have a certain belief and maybe conflate various things, it doesn't imply that anybody who's explaining how my mind works has to make the same assumption, not at all. So there's something rather odd here that in his discussion, Hume um, quite explicitly and openly says, I'm going to just talk about objects and perceptions indifferently. And I think this partly adds to the the general sort of confusion of of the section. Okay. Now, having explained how the vulgar view arises, Hume emphasizes how much falsehood and error it involves. Um, In particular, there's a false attribution of identity. Uh, We've already seen that. We're seduced by the similarity between perceptions into thinking that there's an identity there when there really isn't. Um, We have the fiction of a continued existence, which is really false, but serves to remedy the interruption of our perceptions. So again, I look at the bottle, look away, look back. Part of me thinks, oh, that's the same impression. Part of me realises that it isn't. So I make up a continued existence. I have the fiction of a continued thing, which enables me to to find some satisfaction in my wanting to say it's the same. But actually it's false. Um, And experiments reveal that the doctrine of the independent of our existence of our sensible perceptions is contrary to the plainest experience. So when you press an eye with a finger you start seeing things double. Um, But, so here I am pressing my eye with a finger. I see two of all of you. But I don't, or say two of the bottle, but I don't think of both of those bottles as being um, continued and distinct existences. I think of one of them as being an illusion. But they're of the same nature. They arise in the same way. They arise from my sense organs, from the operation of light and the refraction of light and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they're of the same nature. So how can I be justified in treating one of them as a genuine, external, continued, distinct thing and the other not? Um, so notice here, we, we, we have an argument based on uh, similar causes, similar effects. Notice that. Uh, He's saying that, um, as it were, false images and true images both arise in the same way through the causal interaction of light and such like with our 
um, our organs. So we, we cannot justifiably treat one of them as genuinely external and continuing while the other one isn't. Okay, so now I've already alluded to the philosophical system. Um, he comes round uh, later in the section to talk very explicitly about it and to say some things that can seem a bit confusing. So philosophers, when they contemplate things like these experiments, uh, pressing one's eye and that kind of thing, they realize that the perceptions of our, that, that come to our senses are not independent of us, but they, just like the vulgar, are very reluctant to give up the belief in the continued and distinct existence of body. So they invent a new theory, the theory of the double existence of perceptions and objects, as a palliative remedy. So whereas the vulgar confuse perceptions and objects, okay, they, they think of the perception, the very perception, the very thing they see, as existing unperceived, as continuing to exist unperceived, by a kind of confusion, a fiction. Philosophers are quite explicit about it. They say, oh yeah, there are two things. There's the perception that appears to my mind, and that's just temporary and dependent on my senses, etc. And there's the real object out there, which is quite distinct. And what Hume wants to say about that theory is that it has no primary recommendation either to reason or the imagination. We've already seen the argument that he uses for saying you can't actually reason your way to it, right? because you can't establish a causal link. So there's no good reason for believing in the philosophical view. And it has no primary recommendation to the imagination, because our imagination, our natural uh, instinctive tendencies, actually lead to the vulgar view, the view that confuses perceptions and objects. So why do philosophers believe it? Well, it acquires all its appeal from the imagination. So th the explanation of why philosophers believe this view is not that they've thought it through and they've got good grounds for it. It's that they just realize that the vulgar view is hopeless because you, know, you press your eye and you realize straight away that the impressions of your senses are dependent, so they can't be continued and distinct. But nevertheless, you're, you're so impelled by your imagination to believe in something that's continued and distinct that you invent something quite distinct from your impressions to provide that role. Um, so we end up with Hume actually seeming to criticise the philosophical view more than the vulgar view. He's saying it, it's no better and it acquires all its appeal from the vulgar view. Though, of course, he said that the vulgar view is false. So, um, in spelling out these various points, um, this is the argument we, we uh, referred to before, that reason cannot establish continuing objects causing our perceptions because it can't establish a causal link. Um, the imagination leads naturally to the vulgar rather than the philosophical view. So the philosophical view, as I've said, acquires all its force from the vulgar view, and that explains various aspects of the philosophical view. So when you see references like this. What I'm trying to do is provide you with a guide so that you can read through the section and understand the structure of what's going on. And if you find a bit of it confusing, don't worry, move on to the next bit, understand that. Right? The idea is that you won't be completely lost if you find at some point, as you probably will, uh, that there are parts that you don't fully understand. I certainly find that when I read it through. So we come to a despairing conclusion. You've got the vulgar view, which we know to be false. We've got the philosophical view, which tries to avoid the falsehood of the vulgar view, but ends up being completely without justification and deriving whatever force it does from the vulgar view. So where are we? I cannot conceive how such trivial qualities of the fancy, conducted by such false suppositions, can ever lead to any solid and rational system. Philosophers deny our resembling perceptions to be identically the same and uninterrupted, and yet have so great a propensity to believe them such that they arbitrarily invent a new set of perceptions to which they attribute these qualities. I say, a new set of perceptions. 
because it is impossible for us distinctly to conceive objects to be in their nature anything but exactly the same with perceptions. What then can we look for from this confusion of groundless and extraordinary opinions but error and falsehood? And how can we justify to ourselves any belief we repose in them? So you can see why he comes round to that, with the passage I quoted at the beginning, where he says, you know, to tell the truth, well, you know, I started out saying that we were going to ex- accept the existence of body, but right now I'm inclined to deny it. Um, an important passage here, by the way, um, remember we've, we've already alluded a few times to Hume's copy principle, the important principle that all ideas are derived from impressions, and therefore... Um, If there is no impression, you cannot have an idea. Remember, this is absolutely crucial to his discussion of causation, where he wants to say the only idea we can have of causation uh, has to be derived from some impression, and therefore it turns out to be that impression which he equates with the determination of the mind to make a causal inference. But notice that here he's appealing to the copy principle too. When the philosophers try to... Um, reconcile this problem, right? They, they have these impressions, they feel the same inclination as the vulgar do to think of them as the same, although they're really different. So they invent an object which they pretend is continuous, so that the impressions change, but there's a, they imagine there to be a continued and distinct existing object. Now you might think, well, that's fine, It's a postulation. They're postulating that there is some different kind of thing, a physical object, which somehow causes and links together these impressions. But Hume will have none of that, no, because there's no possible impression from which that idea could derive. You never actually are directly acquainted with external objects, only with your perceptions. So if you imagine that you're inventing a physical object, you're thinking, ah, there's some object out there which links these things together. Hume is saying, no, you're not. You're just inventing another set of perceptions because perceptions are the only things you can think about. You don't have any idea of an external object. So philosophers, when they think they're postulating some new kind of thing, are actually just postulating more of the same. Uh, This relates back to that section that I mentioned before, section 126 of the idea of existence and the idea of external existence. Probably worth, when you you read that passage, looking back to that um, and seeing how that's connected. So the upshot of all this is that the only remedy, actually, the only way we can avoid hopeless paradox is careless, carelessness and inattention. Let's just not think about it. Let's just carry on living our vulgar life and not worry about it. Because if we think too hard about it, we just get total confusion. Okay. So that's the end of scepticism with regard to the senses. And I'm just going to give a quick um, run through the following two sections. As I said, next time I'll be trying to make some sense of all this scepticism and explain. You can see there's a real problem here because most of the time Hume's, in his writing, seems very pro-science, almost rationalistic in a sense, in that he thinks the world is there to be understood. The treatise of human nature is is an attempt to introduce the experimental method of reasoning into moral subjects to do moral science, science about the human world. And yet here he is saying, if you think too hard about it, you just get confusion. Uh, Those don't sit very easily together. um, And you can see why understanding Hume is therefore uh, quite a puzzle. But we'll get to that next time. For the moment, put that on one side, and let's just go on with the ancient philosophy and the modern philosophy. 143, section 143 of the treatise really is just putting the boot into Aristotle and the the medieval schools. Um, Aristotle uh, wanted to attribute the motions of bodies to something like desires. The reason stones fall is they strive to reach the centre of the universe. The reason planets move in circles and stars move in circles is because they're trying to imitate the eternal perfection of God. 
So there are kind of intentions built into physical objects. And Hume thinks that's just a, a, a fiction. Um, basically, people who believe these things, the peripatetics, that means basically uh, the, the medieval Aristotelians, um, they allow themselves to be seduced by the imagination. Right? It's very easy. I mean, imagine that you, uh, you see a lightning flash. It's very natural for an untutored person to assume that there's some god up there who's angry. That's our imagination taking hold of us. Well, these philosophers allow their imagination to take hold of them far too much, according to Hume. Uh, they, and here you see echoes of 142, the section we've just looked at. Uh, they imagine that there's something that retains its identity through time in physical objects. They don't distinguish between perceptions and objects. They, they attribute something um, continuing. They feign something unknown and invisible, which is supposed to continue the same under all these variations. This unintelligible something it calls a substance or original and first matter. So he wants to say that this, this notion of a, of a substance, the kind of thing that the Aristotelians are fond of, is actually incoherent. Think of the, the doctrine of transubstantiation. The doctrine of transubstantiation is the doctrine that, that in the Christian Eucharist, uh, the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. And the idea is, in, on the Aristotelian theory, what's happening is that the underlying substance is changing, but the accidents, that is the, uh, the uh, phenomenal qualities, the taste, the, the colour and so forth, remain the same. Hume wants to say that that notion of a substance is just completely unintelligible. They haven't a clue what they're talking about. Again, there's no impression from which that idea could be derived. Um, so, these people suppose a substance supporting, which they do not understand, and an accident supported, of which they have as imperfect an idea. The whole system, therefore, is entirely incomprehensible. You might think at this point, hang on a minute, Hume. <laughs> You've shown, haven't you, that our ordinary beliefs are pretty incomprehensible, and here you are accusing these lot of coming out with incomprehensible beliefs. Maybe you're in the same boat. Uh, so, yes, more of the same. Sympathies, antipathies, and horrors of a vacuum. Again, uh, this is... These philosophers bestow on external objects the same emotions which it observes in itself. This inclination, tis true, is suppressed by a little reflection and only takes place in children, poets, and the ancient philosophers. Well, children we can excuse because they're young. Poets, well, it's their job to exploit the imagination. But what excuse shall we find to justify our philosophers in so signal a weakness? You can see he's having a lot of fun criticising the ancient philosophers and suggesting that their theories are no better uh, than the reveries of poets or children. But he does face up to the problem that I just alluded to. Um, and there's a very famous passage, the, actually the first paragraph of the next section of the modern philosophy... He faces up to this problem that on his own principles, his philosophy is built on the imagination. Remember, his theory of inductive belief, of causal inference, uh, on which he thinks all science is based, is itself founded on the imagination. And now here he is criticizing these Aristotelians for building their philosophy on the imagination. Uh, so, isn't this a bit inconsistent? Well, in this famous paragraph, he distinguishes between two sorts of principles of the imagination. He says one of them's good, the other one's bad. Again, this is something we'll be looking at in more detail next time uh, because it's crucial to understanding uh, how one can make good sense of what Hume's saying here in relation to these different topics. So in of the modern philosophy... This is uh, now section 144. 
he contrasts uh, the Lockean philosophy, the modern philosophy, with the ancient philosophy. He says, well, these modern philosophers, sure, they build their philosophy just like I do on the imagination, but they claim that their principles are based on the solid, permanent, and consistent principles of the imagination rather than those that are changeable, weak, and irregular. So go back to Hume on induction. Hume has argued that whenever we make a causal inference, that is founded on custom, on the assumption we make, without any independent reason for it, that what's happened in the past will happen in the future. And Hume is saying, yes, well, that principle of the human imagination is solid, permanent, and consistent. It's a kind of irresistible principle of human nature to reason in that way, and it's just as well we do. All our science is based on that. Contrast that with the principles of the imagination that are exploited by poets and children and the ancient philosophers. They're fanciful. Um, They don't deserve the same respect. But the modern philosophers, like Locke, claim to base their philosophy scientifically, much more on a much more secure foundation. Now, the modern philosophers, what characterizes the modern philosophy for Hume is the distinction between primary and secondary qualities. So we've seen in 142 Hume's account of how the general belief in body, the continued and distinct existence of body, arises. Now he's going to analyze a particular variety of that, different from that of the ancient philosophers who believe in substance and accidents. Instead, we've now got philosophers who distinguish between primary and secondary qualities. The primary qualities are things like uh, shape and size and motion, um, which are attributed to the external objects themselves. Secondary qualities are perceptions like color, taste, smell, and so on, which are attributed to the mind. Well, how can one justify this distinction? Hume suggests that the only satisfactory argument for it is derived from the variations of sensory impressions depending on our health, constitution, our situation, and so forth. Here he's very much echoing Barclay's discussion. Barclay tended to put a lot of emphasis on this kind of thing, much more so than Locke. It is certain that when different impressions of the same sense arise from any object, every one of these impressions has not a resembling quality existent in the object. All right? So suppose that I see an object and it looks red. Suppose then I see it maybe under subdued lighting and it looks grey. Well, the red and the grey can't both resemble something in the object. Now, from like effects, we presume like causes. Many of the impressions of colour, sound, etc., are confessed to be nothing but internal existences and to arise from causes which in no way resemble them. These impressions are in appearance nothing different from the other impressions of colour, sound, and so forth. We conclude, therefore, that they are all of them derived from a like origin. It's rather similar to the argument about pressing the eye. Remember that? You press the eye, you get two images of the bottle... They can't both be genuine, but they arise from the same causes, so you conclude that neither of them is. Here, you get different impressions, different sensory impressions of the same object. They can't all resemble the object, but they arise from similar causes, so the natural conclusion is that none of them do, that in the object there isn't real redness and there isn't real greyness either. But here's the problem. The problem is that the only way we can get any ideas of primary qualities is by means of secondary qualities. When we perceive the shape of something, we perceive it by perceiving the colour or maybe by touching it and getting the the impression of shape from that. Whereas if the the impressions of colour are merely subjective, they're secondary qualities, they're not really in the object, there's nothing really resembling colour in the object, as we've argued. And if our ideas of shape come from coloured impressions, then it's impossible for us actually to form an idea of shape that is independent of the mind. 
If colours, sounds, tastes and smells be merely perceptions, nothing we can conceive is possessed of a real continued and independent existence. Not even motion, extension and solidity, which are the primary qualities chiefly insisted on by the modern philosophers, by Lockeans. So, see, to form an idea of a moving extended body, you've got to have some idea of extension. What is it for a thing to be extended? Well, according to Hume, you can only get the idea of an extended space from sight or touch. Well, colour, which is what we see, that's acknowledged to be a secondary quality, not to be anything distinct from the mind, so that's no good. What about the idea of solidity? Well, Hume has this quite interesting argument. It's quite a sophisticated argument. Um, saying, well, we get the idea of solidity from two objects which can't penetrate each other. We see one object bashing into another, and instead of going right through, it pushes it. But in order to understand what it is for one object not to be able to penetrate another, we've got to have some idea of what the object is. And we can't get that from solidity, because that would be circular, Right? Solidity is supposed to be the idea of one object not penetrating another. One what? One object. What's that? Oh, a solid thing. What's solid? Oh, well, that's from etc. You just get a circle. So the only way you can get an independent idea of a solid object is going to be from colour, but we've already said that colour is subjective. So we end up with no satisfactory idea of matter. So Hume ends the section with this Um, what can be a slightly puzzling passage. Thus there is a direct and total opposition between our reason and our senses, or more more properly speaking, betwixt those conclusions we form from cause and effect and those that persuade us of the continued and distinct existence of body. It can seem confusing because you wonder... um, Well, first of all, there's our reason and our senses. Where did reason come from? Well, what he's... Remember, we've seen earlier that Hume equates inference from cause and effect as part of reason. In this section, as in 142, he is treating inductive causal inference as part of reason. Okay. Well, where does causal inference come in? Well, remember that principle, from like effects you get like causes. Okay, that's it. So that's the argument that he's used earlier in the section, and he's pointing out here that if you follow that through, you end up with the impossibility of having any coherent notion of body uh, in line with the modern philosophy. So, again, we end with an apparently pretty despairing conclusion. Both 142 and 144, Hume's main explorations of the idea of the external objects, seems to lead to the view that they're completely incoherent. Um, How then can we make any sense of Hume's philosophy given the contrast between all this scepticism and all the positive view of induction that he shows elsewhere? We'll be talking about that next time. Thank you.